Notice your Bibles. Paul says, as it is written. Now I love this. Because Paul always bases his theology on Scripture. Paul is not quoting a rabbi. Now Paul is not quoting the cute and crafty opinions of men's thoughts written down in other books. For it is written. The Bible that you hold in your lap and the Bible that I have in this pulpit came down to you and I in a sea of blood. And it came by men who were willing to give their lives, to sacrifice it all, so that you could have a copy of God's Word to read in your native tongue. And God will damn a people that neglect the Word of God. God will damn every religious person that wants to trust in the opinions of man over the authority of God's Word. And you might be a reader of books, and you might have a huge library, and you might know a lot of things, but do you know this book? Do you know the gospel that is in this book? Because this book alone is your final authority. And when you neglect this book for some other book, you potentially are damning yourself to hell. This is our only authority. This is the final authority. This is the holy, inspired, living, and breathing Word of God, breathed out by the Holy Spirit and given to us. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. This morning I want to uh, look with you together at Romans 4, verses 13 through 17, The title of the message, Resting on Grace. And if you would please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, I'll read this for us and then we will break it down. Verse 13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Please be seated. In our study of Romans, if Paul sounds somewhat like a broken record, um, that is because he is doing that on purpose. We find him again in these verses, verses 13 through 17, laboring to tell us that sinners saved by grace are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Uh, This is absolutely central to the Christian message. It is the very heart of our faith, and Paul understands that. And so in chapter 4, he has labored to argue that Abraham is our example of what it means um, to be a Christian, what it means to be saved, what it means to be justified before God. And I want to tell you this morning that you will never understand your own salvation if you don't understand the salvation of Abraham. He is the father of our faith. That's exactly what Paul refers to him as in our passage. And Paul has told us, first of all, that Abraham was not justified or made right with God by his works. We saw that in verses 1 through 8. Last week, we saw that Paul also argued that Abraham was not justified or made right with God through his circumcision or, or through some other religious ritual, any religious ritual that you might be able to name. But this morning, Paul argues that Abraham was not justified, he was not made right with God by the law. That the law itself, although it is good and though it is holy and though it is right, though it flows from God's holy character, the law itself has no saving power. 
Just as circumcision or a religious ritual has no saving power, and just as one's good works have no saving power. One of my favorite missionaries was a man by the name of John Patton. He wanted to be a missionary from childhood, and so he went to seminary, and he trained to be a missionary, and he was later ordained uh, to be a Presbyterian uh, missionary. And he set sail for the New Hebrides Islands. This uh, was a series of islands, uh, the inhabitants of whom... Many of them were cannibals. A few weeks after arriving on the particular island, I believe the name of it was Tana, his wife of only a few years tragically died. Following that, a few weeks later, his five-week-old child also perished as he was on the mission field. And one day, many, many years later, he was um, in his home sitting at his desk and he was preparing a translation in the native tongue to the people that he was ministering to from the Gospel of John. And he came to John 3.16 and he realized that in this society that was cannibalistic, there was no trust, no one trusted anyone, so much so that there wasn't even a word in their vocabulary for trust or for faith or for belief. So how was he going to translate John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish. About that time his servant who was a native came in and John Patton looked up at him and he said, "What am I doing right now?" And the servant said, "Well, you're sitting at your desk." And then Patton lifted his feet off the ground and he leaned back in his chair and he said, "What am I doing now?" And that native said a verb that translated means resting your full weight upon the chair. So he picked up his pen and that is how he translated John 3.16. For God so loves the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever rests their full weight on Christ shall not perish but have everlasting life. That is the essence of the gospel, isn't it? The essence of the gospel is that You have nothing to do with your salvation. You are dependent entirely with your full weight resting on Christ and resting on the promise of the gospel that was actually given to Abraham. The central phrase in our passage this morning is found at the beginning of verse 16 when Paul says, that is why it, salvation, depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. The promise of salvation rests fully on the grace of God, on the goodness of God, on the gift of God in Jesus Christ. And what Paul says about the grace of the gospel, he emphatically says, he emphatically emphasizes, and he repeats himself, salvation is not based on works, salvation is not based on circumcision, salvation is not based on the law. In fact, the first word of this new section, progressing Paul's thoughts in verse 13, is the Greek word ou, and it is translated not. Now that's the first word in the Greek, but there were no exclamation points existing in the Greek language, so in order to emphasize a statement in writing, a word or a phrase was placed at the beginning of the sentence in what is called the emphatic position. Now, you can't see that in the English because the word not or u is in the middle of the sentence. But in the Greek, the word not is at the beginning of the sentence to highlight highlight in an exclamatory fashion that the promise Abraham received by God was emphatically not based in any way from any conceivable angle on the law. Having established that Abraham's Justification or being made right with God did not come by works and did not come by circumcision. Paul now says in verses 13 through 17, it also did not come by the law. And he provides for us three compelling arguments. Three compelling arguments to demonstrate that the promise Abraham received through faith rested on the grace of God's promise, not on the law. The law is valuable and the law is good and the law flows from God's holy character. But the law has no saving power in your life. It is antithetical to God's saving power. Because the gospel, the good news that God sent His Son into the world to die for sinners, 
That is the message that saves, not the message of the law. So let's look at these three compelling arguments. First of all, Paul gives an historical argument in verse 13. Then he follows that with a logical argument in verses 14 and 15. And then he closes with a theological argument in verses 16 and 17. Notice verse 13, the historical argument. For the promise to Abraham, says Paul, and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. In other words, Abraham was not given a law, Paul says, he was given a promise. And he's going all the way back to the historical record, to the day in which Abraham stood before God to receive that promise. And he defines for us here by looking at history the what of the promise, that is its content, followed by um, the how of the promise, how it was received. This historical argument has two points, the what of the promise and the how of the promise. Notice first the what of the promise, verse 13a, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring was, that's the idea, that he would be heir of the world, that he would be heir of the world. Now that is an understatement because there are a number of theological truths that we need to unpack just in that statement that Abraham would be heir of the world. The promise God made to Abraham, in a nutshell, and his offspring, which includes all believers, is that he would be heir of the world. What did this include? Well, first of all, the promise to Abraham included the fact that there would be a promise that involved a a global reality in geography, a land promise, the land of Canaan, specifically, But God had to start somewhere in the world for Abraham to be an heir of the world, and so God chose the land of Canaan. You come back tonight, we will look at Joshua chapter 3 when the children of Israel conquered the land of Canaan. That was the heart of the promise. But the heart of the promise was general enough to indicate that ultimately it would include more than Canaan, that it would include the entire world. We can go back to Genesis and study the fact that when Abraham stood before God, God told him, I want you to look to the north and to the south and to the east and to the west and as far as you can see and even beyond that, that is what I am promising to you. That the promise was global in its geography. That's why Paul says in verse 13 that the promise contained the reality that Abraham would be heir of the world and his offspring with him. But Abraham would be heir of the world not only because the promise was global in its geography, but secondly, it was global in its ethnicity. His seed, or his offspring as it's called in verse 13, remember Genesis says, would be as the stars in the sky and the dust on the earth. Now I want you to turn back with me to the book of Genesis because I think it's important at this point for you not to take my word for it, but to just look at Scripture. You can make your own determination, but it seems to be clear to me. For example, we can look at um, verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt. The Egyptians, I'm sorry, that's chapter 12, ver- chapter 13, verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. That's the reality of the promise being global in geography. But notice, uh, for example, in verse 16, that it's also global in its ethnicity. Verse 16, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. There's going to be tons and tons of people. Who are these people? Notice chapter 15 and verse 5. He brought him outside and said, look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Who is the dust? Who is composing the, the stars of the sky and the dust of the earth? Chapter 18 and verse 18 seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, here it is, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. You say, how is it global in its ethnicity? Well, it includes all sorts of nations. And this is repeated throughout Genesis. For example, in Genesis 22, verse 18, I believe it is, and in your offspring shall all, yes, here it is, all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. 
And you could go back to Genesis 12 and verse 3. In Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the nations of the earth that believe like Abraham constitute one big family, the family of Abraham. So it's in this sense that it can be said that Abraham was promised to be heir of the world. He's heir of the world because the promise is global in its geography. It includes the whole world. It's global in its ethnicity. It includes all sorts of nations, not just Jews. And you say, well, how do we know for sure that's what Genesis meant? Pretty easy. Turn with me to Romans chapter 15. Paul brings this up himself. He says in verse 18, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Notice what he says, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, that so from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, thus I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, and now he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 15, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand it sounds to me like the fact this promise was global in geography and global in ethnicity. There's going to be people from all around the world that hear about Christ and believe in Christ just as Abraham did. It's global in its geography. He's the heir of the world. It's global, the promises in its ethnicity because he is going to have a vast posterity, one big family. But it's also global in sovereignty. When it says that Abraham would be heir of the world... It's speaking about the promised heir, the promised seed, who would be the one who would accomplish our redemption and who would have underneath him a worldwide dominion. I'm speaking specifically, of course, about the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, when Paul interprets the book of Genesis in the book of Galatians, this is what Paul says. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So there's a sense in which Abraham has all sorts of people that come from him. But there's another sense in in which those people must be found in the primary offspring, the primary seed, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And because all those justified by faith are part of the same family, they come from the lineage of Abraham, they are all found in Christ, they all believe in Christ. Paul later says in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So when Paul says in verse 13 that the promise to Abraham and his offspring would be that he would be the heir of the world, he's saying that this is a promise that includes a a global element in geography, a global element in ethnicity, and a global element in sovereignty. It's speaking about all of those who are found in Christ and are therefore under his rule and reign. And since Christ is the ascendant reigning Lord Jesus Christ, all things are his. The chair you are sitting in belongs to Christ. The building that you reside in belongs to Christ. The car you drove this morning belongs to Christ. Your house belongs to Christ. Your life belongs to Christ. The whole world belongs to Christ. John 3.16 For God so loved what? The world that He sent His only begotten Son. Jesus came not to just reign over the church. Jesus came to reign over the world. And because all things belong to him, because he is the ascended reigning Lord Jesus Christ, Paul could say what we might think is something crazy when he says this in 1 Corinthians, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And then he says why? And you are Christ's and Christ is God. Everything belongs to Christ, and because we are in Christ, the final seed and offspring of Abraham, everything in this world revolves around Christ and, in a sense, revolves around his people. That is why Paul could say later, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. We, as the people of God, come from our spiritual father, Abraham. 
The whole world belongs to Christ. The whole world belongs to the rulership of Christ. And therefore, all things belong to us. Now, I understand that it is not until the final consummated kingdom that all of the world becomes ours. But you need to understand that in Genesis 17, verses 7 and 8, when God promised to Abraham that he would receive the land of Canaan, that was a type of the world that would come to the seed of Abraham. And we know that because it's referred to as an everlasting covenant. And the inheritance is referred to as an everlasting possession. Peter says it's undefiled. It will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. That the world belongs to God's people. All of those who have the faith of Abraham receive and become heirs of the world, ruling with him everlastingly. It is an everlasting covenant. And please understand, Jesus Christ is the actual heir of the kingdom. He inherits the kingdom because God the Father promised it to him, but because you are in union with Christ, it belongs to you. This is what R.C. Sproul says, and I quote, But through the gift of faith and through Christ's righteousness imputed to us by faith, those who are adopted into the family of God become his heirs also. And Paul's going to later develop this a little bit more elaborately in chapter 8 when he says that we are children of God, heirs of God, and joint heirs of Christ. So for Abraham, therefore, to be heir of the world means more than, he, than the fact that he just received land and more than that he had a posterity that was vast. It means something even more important. He was heir of the world because he looked forward to the one who would rule the world. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus said that, didn't he? In John eight fifty six, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And when he saw it, he was what? He was glad. Abraham had faith in the coming seed. And that through that seed, Abraham and us, believers, would become heirs of the world. So Paul is giving an argument from history. He's saying that the promise was a gracious one, seen in the fact of what it promised. God has promised the world to us. Not just forgiveness of sins, not just redemption, not just the gift of the Holy Spirit, not just wonderful fellowship in the church and brothers and sisters in Christ that we can love like our family, but brothers and sisters from around the globe that we will all know someday and we will rule over with Christ In a consummated kingdom, it will all be ours. That is our inheritance because our inheritance is Christ and all things belong to Christ. The content of the promise is overwhelming. And that's why I said it's an understatement, verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world. That is an understatement. That's the what of the promise. But Paul continues to make the historical argument and then he tells us the how of the promise. Verse 13 The second half, he says, this promise did not come, notice your Bibles, through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, if you've been with us for any length of time, you understand that depending on the context, it will determine Paul's usage of the word law. Here in verse 13, Paul is simply saying that the promise Abraham received did not come by way of help from the law but through the alien righteousness imputed to Abraham that he received by faith. Paul is setting up here at the second half of verse 13 a contrast and an antithesis that there are polar opposite purposes of law and faith. The promise, he is saying, depended on God and Abraham received it, therefore, by faith. The promise did not, emphatically, it did not depend on any way from help from the law. How was the promise received? Paul says it was received by faith, not law. That's Paul's point. His point is looking back at the historical record when the promise was made to Abraham, the father of the faith. And we can even fast forward a little bit further past Genesis. After God's law, which was originally written on man's heart, it was later codified and written down on stone tablets at Mount Sinai. But even that particular law was never intended to cancel out God's promise that he made to Abraham nearly 500 years previous. The Mosaic covenant did not cancel out that salvation was by grace alone through faith alone in Abraham's day. There are people who actually say that. They say that Abraham was saved by grace, but during the Mosaic covenant, when the law was written down, that God's people were saved by good works. 
That is a perversion of the gospel. That is a perversion of a proper exegesis of Scripture. And I can prove it if you turn with me over to Galatians chapter 3. For example, beginning in verse 16, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Verse 17, this is what I mean, Paul says, the law which came 430 years afterward, a half a millennium after the promises were made to Abraham, does not annul or cancel out a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. He's talking about the promise to Abraham. Verse 18, for if the promise comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. That's why God gave it to Abraham. And that's why God gave it to Abraham before the law was ever written down. Because salvation was never intended to be by law. The law does not help us gain salvation. The promise to Abraham, in other words, was still valid. It was still fully operative during the Mosaic Covenant. So being justified, being made right with God by faith, means that we receive righteousness that has nothing to do with the aid of the law. This was true in Abraham's day, it was true in Moses' day, it's true in our day. You say, well, then the law is bad. No, not quite. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. He says a similar thing in Galatians 3.21. He says in Galatians 3.24 that the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ. And he also says that although those are good things about the law, the worst thing about the law is its power. Galatians 3.10, the law came in order to curse us, not to bless us. So Paul is emphatic, isn't he? Abraham's faith was not in what he possessed in the law. He didn't even have the law other than what was written on his heart. It wasn't in what he possessed. It wasn't even in what he possessed in terms of his faith. It's not like Abraham had faith in his faith. That is meaningless. Abraham had faith in the coming Christ. Abraham didn't have faith in his faith. It wasn't faith in what he possessed in his faith. It wasn't faith in what he possessed in the law. No, Abraham's trust was not in what he possessed in any sense. It's what he was promised. And what he was promised was that he would be heir of the world And that a seed coming from him would rule over the world. This is how Abraham lived his life. Reading from Hebrews, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Whether it was Abraham or Sarah, both of them understood that they were receiving an inheritance based on a promise, based on grace that was received by faith that had nothing to do with law. And so as Paul writes to the Romans, he wants to present to them an orthodox understanding of the gospel. And so he's repeating himself. Abraham wasn't justified by works. Abraham wasn't justified by circumcision. Abraham wasn't justified by law. It doesn't matter how you look at it. Salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is why the Reformation is so critically important. It defines a right understanding of the gospel. The gospel message wholly rests on the grace of God. So Paul begins with the historical argument, but he elaborates. Notice in verses 14 and 15, he moves to a logical argument. Here in verses 14 and 15, Paul leaves the historical argument, which showed that that Abraham could not have been saved by the law because salvation is not dependent on what he did with the help of the law's standards, but on what God did in making a promise. Now he's moving to a logical argument, listen to this, based on a reasonable view of God's law, to show the logical impossibility of the law helping and earning salvation. And he does it by showing two things. First of all, the purpose of the law reinforced. This is part of his logical argument, the purpose of the law reinforced. Verse 14, he says, For, this is explanatory, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, Paul concludes, faith is null, 
and the promise is void. In other words, Paul argues that if man was able to keep the law of God perfectly, then hypothetically speaking, man could become an heir of God by his obedience to the law. But of course, that's impossible. And that's what Paul's been stating all along. However, he's saying for the sake of argument, if it were possible for an adherent of the law to obey God's law perfectly, then we have a logical contradiction. Because such a result would render it, notice the end of verse 14, it would render faith null and void. Literally, it nullifies the promise. Katogeo is the word for null. It means has been destroyed or has been rendered ineffective. Paul says faith is destroyed if salvation is by law. Faith is rendered ineffective. It's nullified. And then the word kanao literally means emptied. That's the word void. What Paul is saying in verse 14 is very serious. He's saying that if zealous adherents of the law were able to perfectly obey the law of God without sinning, it would empty God's word and empty his promise that salvation comes by faith not law it would literally destroy God's promise it would render it ineffective it would nullify it it would cancel it out it would make God's promise to Abraham an empty promise Paul is actually saying that if salvation can be aided by the law then it cancels out faith and it makes God's promise not a promise and therefore it makes God a liar and that can't be the case Paul is saying no legitimate Christian would ever believe that. No legitimate Christian ever reading this letter written to the Romans would believe that. I love what John Stott says. He says, and I quote, law and promise belong to different categories of thought, which are incompatible. Law language, you shall do this and that, demands our obedience. But promise language, Stott says, I will, like when God says, I will bless you, Abraham, demands our faith. What God said to Abraham was not obey the law and I will bless you, but rather I will bless you, therefore believe my word, believe my promise. So in a roundabout way, Paul is reinforcing the correct purpose of the law. He's doing it from a negative vantage point. He's saying the law can't be an aid to salvation if we use it as a measurement of our obedience, assuming that God has revealed the law to us so that we can somehow live up to that standard. Because this is a conflict of interests. It's a contradiction on God's part because it is entirely antithetical and illogical. It doesn't mesh with the promise that is received by faith. This is the simple gospel. But it's amazing to me how many people confuse it through rituals, through liturgy, Uh, through the salvation of the church, through baptism, through works. Paul says this in the book of Galatians, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. He says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For, For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Why was Jesus cursed? Paul says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So he's reinforcing the the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is not that the adherents of it can obey it and become heirs. That's illogical. That way of thinking nullifies the promise. That way of thinking renders ineffective the promise. That way of thinking says God is a liar because God promised that Abraham would receive the blessing through faith, not the law. But after reinforcing the purpose of the law, Paul now reveals the power of the law in verse 15 and really the power of the law removed. Notice your Bibles. Paul goes on to explain, for the law brings wrath. He's continuing this logical argument. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That phrase, for the law brings wrath, that means that's God's intended purpose for the law. It reveals that you and I are under His wrath. You and I are under His judgment because the high standards of the law of God remind us of how sinful we are. So Paul is saying the law has great power. The law has the power to bring upon us 
the wrath of God. If you turn over with me to Romans 7, Paul describes it this way, beginning in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Paul says, look, I would not have known that it was wrong to look at a woman and lust after her if the law didn't say that I shouldn't covet. And then he says in verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. That is, it's dead to you and I. We don't recognize our sin. Why do you think people in society want to do away with law? Because they don't want to be convicted about their sin because they know the power of law is condemning. It makes us guilty. Paul says in Galatians 3.24, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. That's sort of the positive way to describe the power of the law. The negative way is Romans 7. There wasn't a law, I wouldn't know that I'm I'm a sinner. I wouldn't know that I transgressed the law of God. But positively speaking, if it wasn't for the law of God teaching me that I was a sinner, I would have never come to know Christ and receive the gospel through faith alone. And then notice the rest of verse 15, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. If God's law wasn't around, then we'd have no way of knowing that we are transgressors of a standard. So it is in this sense that the law is good and gracious, not to provide salvation, but to point out our need of salvation. And that's why Romans 8 is so precious. Verse 1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh." You see, beloved, when we are in Christ, there is no condemnation. You remember Romans chapter 3. In God's courtroom, we have been legally declared righteous, not through law-keeping, but only through faith we receive this promise. And this doesn't mean that it's that God sort of winks at sin. No, we are transgressors. We have violated God's law. As verse 15 says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. But there is a law, and we know the law of God. Therefore, we are transgressors. It's not that we're not transgressors, but God, because of Christ's righteousness, treats us as if we aren't transgressors. He removes the power of the law so that now we stand in grace. The law is still in place, but now we stand in grace. We are covered with Christ's righteousness, and therefore the power of the law, the penalty of the law, no longer has an argument against us. This is the gospel. I remember, and I've told this story many times. Forgive me for telling it again. I remember getting off of my bus one day when I was a kid, and um, I decided to take a shortcut home. A bus stop was at uh, a grocery store parking lot, and I decided that I would, uh, instead of walking all the way around the parking lot, I would trespass, pass the signs that said no trespassing, and I would walk straight through the owner of the grocery store's yard. And so as I'm making my way through the yard, which was probably about 70 yards long, something like that, I heard this strange sound of rattling chains behind me. And so immediately I turned around and whipping around the corner of the house were three Doberman pinchers, slobbering and running as fast as they could. I remember thinking in that moment, I don't think that I said a prayer, and I I am about the least mystical person you'll ever meet, but I am convinced as I started to run that my feet were not touching the ground. Someone was carrying me across that yard. And I remember thinking, if I can just get to the street, I I no longer will be a trespasser. I violated a law. I might pay for it. But if I can make it to the street unscathed without being attacked by dogs, then maybe I can run the rest of the way home and forget about it. Well, the reality is what I did was absolutely 
stupid. What I did was trespass, and I didn't think it was a big deal, but lawfully, if I would have been attacked by those dogs, I would have not had an argument in court. I was on the guy's property. The only thing that saved me from my transgression and my trespass was getting to the street. That street was the street that took me home. That street was the street that the dogs would stop at because it went beyond their barrier. They couldn't attack me beyond that because they were trained not to attack beyond the borders. And in the same way, Scripture says the words of Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the street. It's not that the transgression is forgotten. It's not that the transgression is no longer a reality. It's that we were saved from our transgressions. It's that we were saved from our trespasses and sins only by the Holy Spirit placing on the path of Jesus Christ to lead us home to heaven. This is the essence of the gospel. And Paul would not repeat himself so many times if People didn't have a hard time believing that they could do something to achieve righteousness. We are all hardwired to think that we can do something. Paul's saying it's only according to God's grace and mercy. So now Paul leads us to a third argument. He's given an historical argument in verse 13. Abraham received the promise of God, not a law. He's given the logical argument in verses 14 and 15 that that the law of God and faith, the law of God and grace are are incompatible. They're they're in two separate categories. Now he's going to give the theological argument. Notice verse 16. He says, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In short, Paul is saying that Abraham was promised a universal posterity, verse 16, because he trusted in a universal power, verse 17. And you need to understand, Abraham keeps coming up in the discussion because what I said earlier is true. If you don't understand Abraham's salvation, you'll never understand your own salvation. Because Abraham is saved the only way anyone is ever saved. And Paul says in verse 16 that Abraham received a universal posterity. This is the same thing Paul has said Many times before, notice verse 16, he says that Abraham, in the middle of it, is the father of us all. The end of verse 16, rather. Abraham is the father of us all. That is, anyone who has faith is a son of Abraham. He is our father. And Paul explains the reason faith alone is necessary. Beginning of verse 16, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his, Abraham's, offspring. Paul is saying grace gives, faith takes. And faith takes what grace gives. Otherwise, to quote Romans eleven six, grace would no longer be grace. Paul is saying God's law makes demands which we transgress. And therefore we incur God's wrath. Verse 15. But God's grace makes promises which we believe, like Abraham... And therefore, we receive a blessing. So you need to think about it this way. Law, obedience, transgression, and wrath all belong together. And over here is grace and promise and faith and blessing. They all belong together. So that what Paul is saying is that a true understanding of a theology of the gospel is consistent in their understanding of law and in their understanding of grace. Abraham was promised a universal posterity, he says in verse 16, made up of all his offspring. And notice he says, not only to the adherents of the law, that is Jews who valued the law and who were given the law on Mount Sinai in written form, verse 16, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, that is Gentiles, people like us, people who don't have Jewish origin, but have faith like our father Abraham. Paul is saying, look, it makes no difference, Jew or Gentile. Anyone truly saved, two things are true. Number one, they were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And number two, they are part of Abraham's family because they have the common denominator, not of the law, but the common denominator 
of faith. And therefore, as Paul says in verse 16, he is the father of us all. So his point is simple. If you are intent on depending on the law, then guess what? Salvation depends entirely upon you. And that's not a good place to be. Because Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. On the other hand, if grace is received by faith, which is really the, the hand of the heart reaching out to God, then God's promise is made sure to all Abraham's offspring. He has a universal posterity, a universal family that you can only become part of through faith. This is his theological argument. He says nothing here about God preserving the land in ancient Israel. He says nothing here about the temple being rebuilt. He says nothing here about the value of ethnic Jews over any other race. He has gone to great lengths to say that your theology matters more than your ethnicity. The promise that God made to Abraham was global in its geography, global in its ethnicity. It was global in its sovereignty. All who are in Christ, who is the seed of Abraham, become not only Abraham's son, but they become in union with Christ And therefore, we are heirs of the world. We inherit all God has promised us. And why was Abraham promised a universal posterity? Well, because he trusted in a universal power. Verse 17. Notice your Bibles. Paul says, as it is written. Now, I love this. Because Paul always bases his theology on Scripture. Paul is not quoting a rabbi. Paul is not quoting the cute and crafty opinions of men's thoughts written down in other books. For it is written. The Bible that you hold in your lap and the Bible that I have in this pulpit came down to you and I in a sea of blood. And it came by men who were willing to give their lives to sacrifice it all so that you could have a copy of God's word to read in your native tongue. And God will damn a people that neglect the word of God. God will damn every religious person that wants to trust in the opinions of man over the authority of God's word. And you might be a reader of books and you might have a huge library and you might know a lot of things, but do you know this book? Do you know the gospel that is in this book? Because this book alone is your final authority. And when you neglect this book for some other book, you potentially are damning yourself to hell. This is our only authority. This is the final authority. This is the holy, inspired, living, and breathing Word of God, breathed out by the Holy Spirit and given to us. So Paul does not craft some cute systematic theology based upon philosophy and the opinions of man. He says, what I'm going to tell you is written in the good book. And what is it? As it is written, verse 17, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, that is Abraham, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. He's quoting Genesis 17, 5, by the way. I've made you the father of many nations. Genesis 17, 5 says, I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. It means the same thing. It's as if Paul wants to, again, press home the point that it shouldn't be that impossible to believe that God is able to save Gentiles as well as Jews. Because his promise is based on the one he gave to Abraham and hasn't changed. The promise was based upon Abraham's belief, not his ethnicity. He looked more like a Gentile when God confronted him than a Jew. Jews didn't exist and he was uncircumcised. God is the one who does the impossible. He doesn't need man's help to save. He doesn't need your ethnicity. He doesn't need your law. He doesn't need your religious rituals. The law is only good insofar as it points out we are sinners in need of a Savior. That's his point. And there's really no end to what interpreters say Paul means in that last phrase in verse 17 when Paul says, in the presence of the God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that don't exist. This isn't that hard to understand. There are really three truths about God um, that we glean from this statement. Truth number one, Paul is making the point that God's sovereign power has a sovereign power in the concept of conception. Both Abraham and Sarah, at the time of God's promise, 
as verse 17 says, they stood, Abram stood in the presence of God. Abram and Sarah were old. They were past the years that people would have children. So Isaac was a miracle baby. In fact, don't take my word for it. Notice verse 18. We'll just skip ahead a little bit. It's okay. We can break rules when we make them. Verse 18, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Notice this. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as what? Dead. Since he was about 100 years old. Isaac was a miracle baby, but guess what? There was another miracle baby that came from that line, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn back with me to Luke chapter 1. Mary was not as good as dead. She wasn't old, uh, but a miracle had to happen for her to be pregnant. And this becomes clear in Luke 1 verse 30. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever in his kingdom There will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? She wasn't as good as dead, but she was a virgin. And the only way she would be pregnant would be the same way Sarah, who was as good as dead, got pregnant. And that was supernaturally. And notice verse 37. She believed for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. Mary is revealed as the new Sarah. She is the new Eve. Because from her womb will come the Christ child. Zechariah 2.10 Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. That's a prophecy about Mary, the daughter of Zion. The Lord would dwell in her womb. God is sovereign, and so He can do the impossible like miracle conceptions. He gives life to dead wombs like the womb of Sarah. And men like Abram who are too old to have children. Naturally speaking, God does the supernatural. So when Paul says, in the presence of the God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead, you need to think about God's sovereign power in conception. That's what made this whole gospel possible. It had nothing to do with man. But it also has a reference to God's sovereign power in resurrection. Because again, verse 17 says that God gives life to the dead. We looked at this last week, but if you turn over with me to Hebrews chapter 11, we read about the account of Abraham offering Isaac. Something rather interesting, verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up a son. That means he had the knife raised and he was ready to kill him. Of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. But verse 19 says, Abraham considered that God was able even, what does it say? To raise him from the dead, which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. In other words, the author of Hebrews says, in in a sense, Isaac was a type or a figure of the resurrection of Christ. Because Isaac was as good as dead. Before the angel stopped Abraham from raising and lowering that knife. What do we read uh, later here in chapter 4, verse 24 of Romans? But for ours only, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. What has Paul been speaking about in Romans chapter 3 and chapter 4? He's been speaking about the doctrine of justification. And what does he say here? He says that doctrine is contingent upon the concept of resurrection. And how does resurrection occur? Only if God is involved. It's the only way resurrection ever occurs. The Bible says we're dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 25 here says that we are raised for our justification. So think about this. The miracle of the new birth is attached to the miracle conception of Mary, the birth of Christ. And in John 3, when we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we are born again into the kingdom of God. Your salvation is dependent upon two miracles. The miracle of conception, the physical birth of Christ, and the new birth for you, a secret 
operation of the Spirit of God that is sovereign and your salvation is based upon a sovereign resurrection. Two things that only God can do. He makes women conceive and he raises the dead. This phrase is not hard to understand. When Paul says that God gives life to the dead, speaking about God's sovereign power in conception, God's sovereign power in resurrection, and the third truth, God's sovereign power in creation. Notice the end of it. And He calls into existence the things that do not exist. Wow. Where do we read about that? Genesis chapter 1. God created the world ex nihilo. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. Again, it doesn't matter if you're talking about conception or resurrection or creation. There's one common element, and that is God is the one who is behind that. If anyone is ever going to be born again, God must do it. If God is ever going to be raised from their deadness and sins and trespasses, God must do it. If, if, any, if, God is going, if you are going to have and be a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, God must do that. Everything about the gospel has to do about God's power. His power to save through miraculous conception. His power to save through miraculous resurrection. His power to save through miraculous creation. So how in the world, pray tell me, can anyone ever believe for any moment that we have anything to do with our salvation? Whether it's good works, circumcision, baptism, church membership, obedience to the law. Paul says, look, Abraham stood in the presence of God and believed in him because it's God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. You might love the law of God, good for you, but don't ever believe it has saving power. It is God alone who has saving power. The power of conception, resurrection, creation. Salvation is sovereign. Salvation is saving. Salvation is amazing. So yes, Paul does sound like a broken record. And yes, it's on purpose. You know why? Because Paul never got over God's amazing grace. And neither should you. Neither should me. We sing about it all the time. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Those amazing words were written by John Newton. The former captain of a slave ship. A blasphemer. A drunkard. Saved by God's amazing grace, called into the ministry, became a pastor, and with William Cowper, he wrote 349 hymns. Amazing grace just being one of them. Until his death, John Newton, Pastor John Newton, he died at 82. He never got over the amazing grace of God, and he always sounded like a broken record when he preached. He was friends with William Wilberforce and George Whitfield, other Englishmen who were marked by the gospel, and always sounded like a broken record when they preached. The story goes that shortly before Newton died, a leader in the church suggested that he retire from preaching due to his failing health, his poor memory, bad eyesight. Newton replied this way. He said, what? Shall the old Africa blasphemer stop while he can still speak? In other words, I'm not going to stop until my voice is gone. On another occasion... Close to the time of his death, he loudly proclaimed from the pulpit one Sunday, my memory is nearly gone and I can't think that straight, but two things I know, I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. He never forgot. And even his tombstone is a memorial to his belief in God's amazing grace. It reads, John Newton, once an infidel, a libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa, but was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he long labored to destroy. Newton never got over God's amazing, sovereign grace. How could we ever say that it's wrong to be guilty of sounding like a broken record? You better sound like a broken record because your only hope is this 
Jesus Christ, who became a baby. He lived a perfect life, 33 years, never sinning in thought, word, and deed, and he was sacrificed. And um, the sacrifice went through, not like Abraham with his son and Isaac. No, this sacrifice really happened, and he really died, but three days later, he rose again from the dead. He's ascended. He's at the right hand of God. And the greatest book ever written in sacred scripture is the book of Romans. It's not only great because of its complexity. It's also great because of its simplicity. Because all Paul says is, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget God's saving, amazing grace. May we never forget. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.